Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the 2017 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of August at the Water Poet in Fullgate Street and at the Curzon Cinema in Allgate in the East End of London. The next speaker we are pleased to present is Mark Ripper. Writing under the name M.W. Oldridge, Mark is the author of the books Murder and Crime, Whitechapel and District, The Moat Farm Mystery, and co-author of the A to Z of Victorian Crime. And it has just been announced that Mark will be responsible for the first book released in the relaunched Notable British Trials series, spearheaded by Mango Books, in which he'll be bringing us the trial of Israel Lipsky which is also the topic of Mark's presentation that you are about to hear. So, let's turn it over to MC Philip Hutchison at the Water Poet in Fullgate Street, introducing Mark Ripper and the trial of Israel Lipsky. So move on to today's first speaker then. Mark Ripper. Uh, Mark uh, likes beer. He doesn't like corned beef. I asked every speaker to send me a biography about themselves. That's pretty much what Mark sent me. But it does pose the question, how would he be on corned beef ale? Try that one. Uh, he's nearing 40. I mean, I know he's, he's, he's still living at near, nearing 40. It puts one of the youngest people in here, git. Um, he... Um, Basically, I mean, obviously with his surname, he's a direct descendant of Jet the Ripper, but he, he, like, he likes playing his son. So it's not the oldest joke in the book. Uh, therefore, he does have a unique insight into the case, and, uh, and some would say some empathy with the killer as well, in the way he conducts himself in everyday life. Um, um, he's a bit of a gentle giant, well, that's what people say, but if, if you've seen the, the film uh, Frankenstein, the original one, uh, it's it's not that piece of footage. You know, Frankenstein picks up the you know great big Frankenstein picks up the child and throws her into the pond. That isn't actually from the film. That's CCTV footage of, of uh, Mark uh, working around the area. Um, he's responsible uh, with with Neil Bell and Trevor Bond and Kate Clark for writing the A to Z of Victorian crime. He's also solely responsible under his pseudonym M.W. Aldridge. I presume I've not let too many cats out of the bag by letting you know that he writes under that nom de plume. Also, he did write under the name Jane Austen for some years, but that, that didn't work out, so he changed that. Uh, he died, and so we thought he had to change his name. Uh, Murder and Crime at Whitechapel and District, and uh, he's also responsible for the book The, the Moat Farm Myster- uh, Mystery, yes, the, the Life and Criminal Career of uh, Samuel H. Dougal, that... Uh, case with the murder of Camille Holland at the, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, I'm not going to say any more about him because that's basically all I know about him. I've known him for over a decade and, and uh, he's such, he doesn't say anything at all about himself at all. So uh, that, that's all that is known about Mark. And so I'm going to pass over to our first speaker today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Ripper. are going to talk about uh, Israel Lipsky. The name of Israel Lipsky is cemented into the lexicon of Ripperology, and since time is short, 
we're going to look only fairly briefly at the outline of the case, which I suspect is generally familiar to most people here and many people listening at home. It has been covered in reasonable depth in a few places recently. I've written about it in a couple of places over the last six years or so. And there are other sources of information which many of you will be conversant, such as Neil Story's East End Murders and Stuart Evans's book about James Berry, Executioner. I don't need to repeat what's been said before. So what we will do uh, is to move through the story itself pretty quickly and then look in more detail about some, at some of the epiphenomena, some of the things that happened around the case. There are a few detours to take along the road, but in outline, just so you know, we're going to think for a while about ways in which the Lipsky case is echoed in some more modern cases. <clears throat> and we're going to attempt a bit of textual analysis, and at the end we're going to do something slightly different, so that's the talk. Israel Lipsky... <coughs> Israel Lipsky predated the Ripper, but only by a year. He had arrived in the UK from Poland in about 1885, and by June 1887, he was living in the second floor room at 16 Batty Street, which is a road running south off the commercial road. One road down from what was then Berner Street and what is now Henry Case Street. Also living at 16 Batty Street in one of the first floor rooms were Miriam and Isaac Angel, a young couple who had been married in Poland and who had come to England about 10 months previously. Miriam was about six months pregnant. Uh, Lipsky himself had been working as an umbrella stick maker for Mark's Cats, a little further down the commercial road, and had in fact become engaged to Cats's wife's sister's daughter. So we can say that he had some sort of emotional or personal stake in the business. Supposedly Lipsky and Kate, his fiancée, had broken up once but got back together, but the truth of this is difficult to prove. Nonetheless, for some reason, Lipsky had left Katz's factory and had resolved to set up on his own, making umbrella sticks from his bedroom in Batty Street. Plenty of cottage industries were operating from people's rooms in the poorer areas of the East End, so the idea itself was not a particularly extraordinary one, but still one wonders what had happened between Lipsky and Katz. Katz's factory was an established enterprise which was, at that time, suffering from the seasonal nature of the trade, there was less demand for umbrellas during the summer months, not today, so there were person personnel implications for a maker of umbrella sticks. Lipsky may have been surplus to requirements at Katz's, but one would think that his personal affiliation to the owner would normally have insulated him against redundancy, more so than other workers without similar associations. Either way, if the trade was down due to the better weather, it hardly made much sense to try and set up in competition with Katz. How could Lipsky, a smaller manufacturer, expect to attract business against more organised manufacturers with established commercial arrangements and the advantages of economies of scale? On Tuesday 28th of June 1887, Lipsky's bedroom factory lurched into life. He had offered daft wages to a 13-year-old boy named Richard Pittman, a former colleague of his at Katz's, and had similarly persuaded one Simon Rosenblum to abandon Katz's workshop in favour of the new and untested experiment. He had also commissioned another man, Isaac Schmuss, who was a stranger, likewise to Lipsky, Rosenblum and Pittman, to come and assist. So there was a workforce of four, including the boss, and Lipsky had taken Pittman on a tour of the East End's hardware stores at the end of the previous week, buying the tools and raw materials ready for work to begin. As it happened, however, 
Lipson spent relatively little time in the workshop on the first morning of its operation. He shuttled back and forth between Batty Street and the shops on Backchurch Lane, looking to pick up advice, but he quibbled over the cost, and buying from Charles Moore at 94 Backchurch Lane an ounce of nitric acid from Moore's supply, which he took away in a half-filled two-ounce bottle. Nitric acid was a typical ingredient in the stickmaker's industrial recipe, and it was used to stain the wooden handles. In the East End, it was widely and freely available. Back in Lipsky's room, Pittman, who was a young 13, was entertaining himself by hammering on the toolbox. Rosenblum was filing horn handles through attachment to the sticks, and Schmuss arrived, passing Lipsky at the front door of the building during Lipsky's morning peregrinations, and being sent by his new employer to the second floor. Uh, Schmuss didn't wait long before he decided that the whole thing was a waste of his time. Uh, he left, realising the gulf between Lipsky's dreams and his powers, and there was later some controversy about whether Schmuss and Rosenblum had been left in the room together at any point. Well, there was controversy about practically everything eventually. For now, it's enough to say that decidedly, Pittman went home to get his breakfast from his mum, and Schmuss either left shortly before Pittman, which meant that he and Rosenblum were never alone, or shortly after Pittman, which meant that he and Rosenblum were alone for a period. But even those involved failed to agree. Rosenblum recalled that Schmuss had left before the boy. Schmuss recalled that the boy left before him, the boy agreed with both of them at different times, and sometimes at the same time, which was his way, I think, of saying that he just didn't remember. Now, Isaac Angel's mother, Dinah, lived not far from Batty Street, and that morning she had been expecting Miriam Angel, her daughter-in-law, to come for breakfast. Miriam did this routinely, but on the morning of the 28th of June, she did not arrive at her usual time. Indeed, she did not arrive at all. So the mother-in-law went to Batty Street, went up to the first floor, and knocked on the door. There was no answer from within, and the door was locked. One of the other residents went up the stairs to help Dinah, and then went to look into Miriam's room through a little internal window, which was covered on the inside with a muslin cloth. An outline was indistinctly visible, unmoving on the bed. With the help of the landlady, the door was forced open, and Miriam's body was found lying on the bed. Her eye blackened, her temple bruised, and with yellow fluid bubbling from the corner of her mouth, an alarm was immediately raised, and the doctor's assistant, Piper, attending from the surgery at the corner of the road, found that Miriam was dead. He removed distressed women from the room, as well as other bystanders, standers who had entered the room to find out what the commotion was about. Uh, Rosenblum was one of them, coming down from upstairs. Piper found that the lock on the door was shot and had to be turned back before the door could be secured from the outside. The key had been on the inside in the keyhole. When the doctor attended, uh, taking the key from Piper and going into the room, a similar crowd of people rushed in behind him. It was obvious that Miriam had died from violence and the administration of acid, so the bottle was searched for. It was at this time that Israel Lipsky was detected lying between the bed and the wall, covered over with coats and the duvet, which had come off the bed. He had also been burned by acid, uh, including inside his mouth, but his injuries were not nearly as extensive as those sustained by Miriam Angel. (laughs) 
He seemed to be genuinely unconscious when he was discovered, but was rapidly brought back to consciousness. His clothing had been damaged by acid, as if he had somehow been caught up in an acidic event. Dr. K looked at Rosenblum, who was back in the room. He had turned white upon seeing Lipsky being lifted from behind the bed. And K, who fancied himself as an observant individual, saw no stain of acid on Rosenblum whatsoever. Rosenblum presumably knew that he had walked into a nightmare, but he could not yet have appreciated its proportions. So at length, uh, Lipsky was removed from the house, taken to the hospital, treated with a stomach pump for any acid he had swallowed and allowed to see his fiancée. He was the only realistic suspect for the murder of Miriam Angel. Uh, he had bought some acid that morning, and a now-empty two-ounce bottle had been found amidst Miriam's bedclothes. Her bedroom door had been locked from the inside, with the body of the deceased and Lipsky being the only human contents. He had been burned by acid, as if in a struggle, and had then swallowed some as if in a slightly hesitant attempt at suicide. Nonetheless, Lipsky, having given himself a few hours to think it over, announced that he was the victim rather than the perpetrator of crime. He said that Rosenblum and Schmuss had killed Miriam Angel and that he had encountered them in the vicinity of Miriam Angel's room, at which point they pinned him down, <coughs> inserted a stick into his mouth and poured acid down his throat. He was arrested for murder, charged and denied the charge. He stuck to his defence for weeks to come despite its difficulties. In, um, in July 1887, Lipsky was tried at the Old Bailey. The trial took two days, and the judge was Mr Justice James Fitzjames Stephen. There were no witnesses for the defence, which was perhaps unwisely left in the hands of a commercial lawyer whose appearances at the criminal bar were few and far between. Following the judge's summing up, the jury found, guilty, uh, found Lipsky guilty in eight minutes, he was sentenced to death, which is a mandatory sentence for murder at the time, and then things really heated up. As first Lipsky's solicitor, an elderly and professionally undistinguished gentleman called John Hayward, appealed against the verdict to the Home Office, and then with things looking gloomy, the Pall Mall Gazette, piloted by the firebrand W.T. Stead, got involved. Uh, much controversy ensued, and the Home Office were perhaps lucky that Lipsky eventually confessed to the murder uh, shortly before his execution. They may indeed have been so relieved that they failed to notice that Lipsky's confession was not much more obedient to the evidence than his defence had been. Lipsky seemed to have been lying first about being assaulted by Rosenblum and Schmuss, and then about what he had really done to Miriam Angel, even when he was confessing to her murder. On the other hand, and rather ironically, the Pall Mall Gazette, having shown absolutely no interest in the legal, moral, or philosophical distinction between lies and truth during its bravado showing in Lipsky's defence, did notice that the confession was not a very reliable one. Now, a couple of weeks ago, in my professional capacity, uh, I was speaking to someone who, for reasons I won't go into, found herself in a terrible situation, starting with housing, and crossing over into all sorts of other areas. And one of the things she said to me was, I can't even go out with the children because of the acid attacks. And it is a thing of some wonder and sadness to me that we are talking about Israel Lipsky against a backdrop of growing public concern about and apparently an increased frequency of acid attacks in London. In Lipsky's case, 
it was noted somewhere in the paperwork that although there was some regulation of other toxic and dangerous substances, acid was quite was widely and freely retailed because of its domestic and industrial applications. So when you read articles like this one from The Guardian in the 14th of July this year, uh, you begin to think that little has changed. Uh, the Home Office, it says, is uh, considering tough new restrictions on corrosive substances after a string of acid attacks in London. However, the National Police Chiefs Council have said it's virtually impossible to ban the sale of all corrosive substances because many are household products, such as bleach and drain cleaner, available over the counter. So this isn't the place to look into the social forces behind acid attacks, but there is an odd synchronicity about it. And if anyone was minded to overlook or underestimate how awful Miriam Angel's death was, these recent upsetting echoes of the Lipsky case ought to have corrected that assessment. The person I spoke to wasn't right. She ought to have taken the children out anyway, and I encouraged her to do so, but I understand what's scary about it. So leading on from that, I want to look at another recent case which contains characteristics which we might compare and contrast with Lipsky's case. I'm sorry to say that it's not a case which is going to lift the mood at all. You may recall the murder of Joanna Yates in Bristol in 2010, shortly before Christmas, for which Miss Yates's neighbour, Vincent Tabak, was found guilty. Miss Yates had gone missing after an evening out, and she was searched for for a little over a week before her body was discovered on Christmas morning. Uh, she had been strangled, and when the forensic evidence was in, the sort of forensic evidence which was not available in Lipsky's case, uh, Tabak was unambiguously connected to the offence. He was charged about a month after the murder, and the weeks in between had seen some newspapers having rather a wild time, speculating about the possibility that Miss Yates's landlord, this man, Christopher Jeffries, might have been the true murderer. Now, if you remember nothing else about the case, this bit is, I think, uh, quite difficult to forget. Nothing in Mr Jeffrey's life can possibly have been the same ever again, since the papers set out to destroy his reputation, but the facts, in inverted commas, which they adduced in support of their theory, were hardly the most compelling. It was said that Mr Jeffries had no television set, for example, and that he preferred to spend his evenings reading. This was true, but not relevant. He also had untamed hair, always interpreted as a token of someone's psychological deformity, and it was suggested that he was associated with someone who had been convicted of offences against children, which sounds much more as if it could have been a useful lead, except for the fact that the allegation paired back the context. Mr Jeffries had worked in a school as an English teacher. Stephen Johnston, the man convicted of the offences against children, had worked as a French teacher at a preparatory school, from which children would go on to Mr Jeffrey's secondary school. They had not been more closely associated than that, and Johnston would have been much more closely associated with large numbers of other people, seeing them daily at work, for example, none of whom were now being publicly accused of murder. In addition, Mr, Mr. Jeffrey's owned and lived in a flat which Johnston had once owned. <coughs> But there had been two different owners of the flat in the meantime, so the flat had not been sold by Johnston to Jeffries. By Mr Jeffries' own account, given that the Leveson inquiry, the newspapers speculated continuously about the possible sexual motive in the murder of Miss Yates, but couldn't decide for themselves whether he, their chosen suspect, was straight or gay, so some of them settled for bisexual as a compromise. 
the police were more interested, at least initially, in the less headline-friendly allegation that Mr. Jeffrey's car had on the evening on the murder been parked on the street facing in one direction at one time and then in the opposite direction a little later on. This suggested that he'd been out and about. But this fact, in inverted commas, was told to them by Vincent Tabak. So Rosenblum and Schmuss would have had some sympathy with Mr. Jeffrey's plight. Being accused of the murder of Miriam Angel by Lipsky was one thing, but they were both examined and cross-examined in front of a jury at the Old Bailey, and they must have considered that their ordeal was likely to have concluded at that point. They had not known each other prior to their encounter in Lipsky's bedroom factory, and the idea that they had suddenly embarked on a wicked conspiracy, murdering one person and injuring another, was difficult to sustain from the outset. However, after the Palmau Gazette took up the case while the clock was ticking down towards Lipsky's ex execution, they had to face the trauma of public accusation. The precise details of the newspaper's allegations were as prejudicial as those made against Mr. Jeffries. On 17th of August 1887, Palmau Gazette reported that Schmuss is now missing. Uh, this was only the beginning. Schmuss was not missing at all. Before the murder, he had, um, had a plan to go to work in Birmingham where he had uh, contacts, and that's where he was. Uh, he had not gone there secretly. Indeed, everyone knew where he was going, and the police and the press both approached him there without difficulty. It was also said that Schmutz did not always tell the, tr the same story uh, about his adventures on that memorable morning. But the newspaper's variant account, in which Schmutz supposedly confessed that he had seen Rosenblum and Lipsky together in Miriam Angel's bedroom, emerged from the lips of Emil Barzuk, one whom even the Pall Mall Gazette acknowledged had been, uh, recently been in prison for theft. There are dozens of pages of paperwork in the Home Office file detailing the efforts which were made to test the veracity of Barzuk's statement, and it collapsed rapidly. But that sort of ethical consideration, that is, whether the story was true, was not bothering the Pall Mall Gazette. In the same article, it was said that Rosenblum has lost £24, has lost £24 in weight since the murder. Harris Devine, one of the witnesses at the trial and a friend of Miriam Angel's, uh, was said to have thought that Rosenblum was dying, and the newspaper went on Rosenblum had even expressed the same opinion to him. Uh, and nor was there any remorse to be found in the Pall Mall Gazette, even after Lipsky's confession had exposed the wrong-headedness of their campaign against Rosenblum and Schmuss. Uh, it must be a matter of profound relief uh, to all concerned that Lipsky's confession exonerates everyone else from all complicity in his crime, it wrote on 22nd of August in an article headlined, All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, Schmuss and Rosenblum, quote, uh, Schmuss and Rosenblum, whom he accused, are now explicitly freed from all blame by their accuser, and we heartily rejoice that a suspicion so widespread has been so conclusively dismissed. Instead, the editor must have forgotten that he'd done more than anyone else to bring the unfounded innuendo against Rosenblum and Schmuss to the public consciousness. Incidentally, some of the comments about Mr. Jeffries carried in our modern newspapers include, and this is only a small selection, uh, 
He was a stickler for discipline and very traditional. We thought it was odd that a man of his age didn't have a wife. And last of all, uh, Mr. Jeffries was also famous for his utter dislike of sports. Okay, so, uh, so nothing new underneath the sun. We're going to look more closely at the Pall Mall Gazette since I promised some textual analysis and we're going to start with an article published on 20th of August 1887, two days before Lipsky was hanged, and the, the day before his confession put an end to the Stead's agitation in his favour. Time was therefore running short and Stead, the editor, uh, who had not failed to point out all and any of the Home Secretary Henry Matthews' failings of judgment in a whole series of articles to this point, now took momentarily a more subtle approach. Uh, and this is the article. If the hangman's rope does not next Monday cut further inquiries short, the mystery may be solved still. Meanwhile, it is a dreadful thing, no doubt, to let one, one, one more murder go unpunished, but there is another thing that would be more dreadful and more dangerous to society still, and that is to hang a man while his guilt is still shrouded in many doubts, and thus to avenge one murder by another. So this isn't characteristic of Stead. He's often more direct, more bombastic, but you can see what he's doing. The Home Secretary is still the target of his rhetoric, but everything is one step removed. A patina of empathy has been applied to the sentence, meanwhile it is a dreadful thing, no doubt, to let one, one more murder go unpunished, as if Stead is suddenly aware of the dimensions of Matthews' obligations towards Lipsky, obligations which Stead himself, by his previous invective, had not made it any easier for Matthews to fulfil. There's an appeal to Matthews' moral judgment, uh, balancing Lipsky's case against the moral imperatives of justice and social responsibility. Matthews' name is not mentioned here. Everything is depersonalised so that the message arrives by implication rather than being hammered down. But still the article quietly dares him to risk the opprobrium of the Pall Mall Gazette if he fails to deliver the commutation for which Stead had been arguing. What this goes to show is that Stead's literary style was not the slave of his frequently inflexible and passionately held beliefs, not just about Lipsky, but about all sorts of things. Stead may not have been able to separate the Lipsky case from his other preconceptions about Matthews, uh, his religion, his politics, and so on, but he was a good enough writer and editor to know when to change things up, put the bigger guns away, if only temporarily. In the Tudor period, which is not my specialism, um, Catholic polemicists would use similarly deft techniques in pamphlets directed at the Anglican Queen Elizabeth, politically disenfranchised, <coughs> excuse me, politically disenfranchised in consequence of their religious beliefs in a country whose state religion had formerly renounced Rome. The same sort of reverse psychology we see here enabled them, as Peter Lake puts it in his recent book, to present their works as truth-telling exercises in good rather than in evil counsel, attempts to reveal to both prince and people the dastardly plots of the polity conspirators who had hijacked the kingdom. It was not always viable to hammer the point down. Sometimes it was necessary to cloak your criticism in something resembling flattery or friendly advice. Instead, and the Catholic polemicists of three centuries before would have understood each other's tactics, if not their objectives. At the other end of the technical spectrum, we have this article with, from the final fifth edition of the Pall Mall Gazette. 
published on the 12th of August 1887. Lipsky must not be hanged. Why not? For a very simple but very sufficient reason. Mr. Justice Stephen, who tried Lipsky and whose summing up contributed not a little to his conviction, has since been converted and is aghast at the prospect of hanging a possibly innocent man. Now, the story is that Mr. Justice Stephen had met with Hayward, Lipsky's solicitor, at the law courts, and Hayward, at the end of the meeting, had gone to see Stead and had told him something about what had happened in the meeting, swearing him to secrecy. Now, why one would go to a volatile newspaper editor, tell him about a private meeting and then ask for discretion does not appear. Of course, the truth is that Hayward was uh, wanted to publish something. And Stead wanted to publish something, but what did they publish? Well, this is a part of it. It was in this way. Many small facts which came out in evidence were yet not commented on by Lipsky's counsel, and still less were they strung into any consistent theory. This was what Mr. Hayward did to, to Mr. Justice Stephen, making out what himself, to himself seemed an irresistible case on Lipsky's behalf. Well, hardly irresistible, replied Mr. Justice Stephen. I should rather call it very strong. Mr. Hayward, as one may be imagined, was well satisfied with the words. But how was it, naturally asked the judge, that all this was not brought before me at the trial? Uh, it was not my fault, replied Mr. Hayward, adding, however, that it was not an afterthought nor a case of straws clutched at to save a hanging man as the judge would see by looking through the leading counsel's brief which the judge had specially instructed Mr Hayward to bring with him. I do not complain, Mr Hayward added, either of the summing up or the verdict. On the cases presented, nothing else was possible, but I do ask you to give weight to the new facts and theories now adduced. And Mr Justice Stephen did. He admitted, as we have seen, that the case was very strong. What makes this conversion all the more remarkable was the whole bearing of the judge. Mr. Uh, Sir James Fitzjames Stephen has not the reputation of being a very impressionable or soft-hearted man, but his anxiety, his agony of mind almost, says Mr. Hayward in describing his interviews, were obvious. It would be a terrible thing, he said, to hang this man, when in reality he may have been half killed by the real murderers who by that means endeavoured to hide their guilt. Why was not all this, he asked again, submitted to me before? I cannot tell you what I think, but I can tell you this, that if I were not I, I should heartily wish you success. On leaving, Mr Hayward happened to speak with Mr Justice Stevens' clerk. What the clerk said entirely, uh, entirely corroborated the impression which Mr Hayward had formed from his interview. The governor is terribly worried about it, the clerk said. I've never known him so bothered about a case all the 40 years I've been with him. Now, what this is, end quote, what this is, is fake news. Uh, Mr Justice Stephen was outraged to read this account of his meeting with Hayward. He had not been converted, and the first and clearest example of the falsity of the Pall Mall Gazette's article pointed out by Mr Justice Stephen himself was that Philip Dyke, the clerk who had supposedly been with him for 40 years, was only about 42 years old. <laughs> Still, Stead was unafraid of this sort of irresponsible reporting. The means were always thought to justify the ends. Further down the article, he put on a fine show of moral ambivalence 
about his responsibilities towards Mr. Hayward, who had supposedly asked him to keep his confidence. Listen out for the bit where Stead takes us into his own conscience and enables us to hear the adversarial voices there. When Mr. Hayward left, says Stead, the editor of this journal was placed in one of those difficult positions in which all the commonplaces of ethics seem to point one way and paramount and imperious duty in another. To save Lipsky, to prevent a judicial murder of the most aggravated kind, one way lay open and only one way. Publish the fact that Mr Justice Stephen is, to say the least, haunted by a terrible doubt as to whether Lipsky is not as innocent as the poor woman for whose murder he is to be hanged, and his execution becomes morally impossible. But then the conversation was private, the interview confidential. We were, in precise terms, interdicted from using it. If we published it, Mr Justice Stephen might be very angry. Mr Hayward would fall into disgrace, and we should have to face the odium of a breach of confidence. You have no... Uh, the good bit. You have no right to use a private conversation. If you don't, an innocent man will be hanged. You may ruin Mr Hayward, but save Mr Hayward's client. Uh, and no one will trust you anymore. Well, when a life is at stake, they'd better not tell me anything that would save that life and expect me to keep it secret. And so, after many arguments pro and con, come on. Next. Uh, and so, after many arguments pro and con, we decided that our first instinctive conclusion was the true one, and we published the above statement just as we received it. When going to press, a boy brought up a letter from Mr Hayward couched as follows. Dear Sir, I do most sincerely trust you will not report my private conversation with the judge. It would ruin my professional standing, and what is of more consequence, it would be adverse to the interests of my poor client. Yours very truly, John Hayward. Once more a pause. Should we blast Mr Hayward's professional reputation to save an innocent man from the gallows? Certainly, if necessary, but Mr Hayward is not to blame. He has no idea that we would violate his confidence. But what about injuring his poor client? How can it injure him to convince the public that the judge who tried him is no longer certain of his guilt? In any case, we take the responsibility of our decision and publish the statement as we received it. I think this is really remarkable. The story of Mr Justice Stevens' conversion was a confection, but Stead had passed unhesitatingly on from the story to the story of the story, which was now the story of whether the story ought to be published at all. Uh, the characteristics of the Pall Mall Gazette's reporting must have been influenced in particular by the time pressure, which came as a byproduct of campaigning journalism, and by the time pressure imposed by publishing multiple different editions every day. Formal innovation was the almost inevitable result of the ongoing race to provide content, and Hearstead anticipates much more recent journalistic and literary development, such as postmodernism, reflexivity, and intertextuality. 
writing about writing, this was not the usual way to argue for the commutation of the death sentence. The overwhelming imperatives of Stead's commercial formula and disciplinary ethos compelled him to reach back for strategies which would have been familiar to the Elizabethans and to stretch forward, grasping at meta-journalistic strategies which would not be familiar until the advent of Gonzo journalism and Tom Wolfe. Erratic the Power Gazette may have been when it was attempting to achieve an orthodox end by orthodox means, but nobody can deny that the Lipsky articles are a virtuoso performance in their own right. Now for something slightly different. You may already be aware of a series of books called Notable British Trials. These were originally published by William Hodge and Company in Edinburgh between 1905 and 1959, and there were 83 volumes in the series. Here are some with Ripper connections. Uh, Trial of George Chapman, edited by H.L. Adam. Uh, Trial of Thomas Neil Cream, edited by W. Uh, Tamworth Shaw. Trial of Mrs. Maybrick, here we go, edited by H.B. Irving. Trial of Robert Wood, the sicker thing, um, edited by Basil Hogarth. The series began with Trial of Madeline Smith, there we go, uh, this one in the green boards, and the series was at the time called Notable Scottish Trials. Notable English trials followed a few years later in red boards. Then the two series were amalgamated in 1920, became notable British trials uh, in red boards. All sorts of interesting and important trials were covered in the series, from Mary Queen of Scots in 1586 to Christopher Craig and Derek Bentley in 1952. Each volume reproduced the transcript of the trial of the person or persons in question and appendices relating to the case and paired this coverage with a detailed introduction. Occasionally, these volumes were not just handsome and authoritative, but actually influential. Some of the editors of the series, particularly its most prolific contributors, William Rockheed and Ringwood Tennyson Jesse, are responsible for some of the finest writing in true crime. And Rockheed has a special claim to fame since his trial of Oscar Slater, first published in 1910, articulated concerns about the conviction of Slater which were later picked up by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which at length led to Slater's release from prison, but not until after he'd wasted many of the best years of his life in there. Several of the introductions to the individual volumes were collected later on in Penguin paperbacks, like these. These are fairly widely available. You've probably seen them on the shelves from time to time when you do. And when you see the, the original volumes in red or green boards, I recommend you buy them. For over 50 years before its rather sudden demise in the late 50s, the Notable British Trials series was the premier imprint for anyone interested in historical crime. It is therefore with some excitement that I'm able to say that this is due out in the near future through Mango Books. The series is being relaunched and the imprint has been licensed from Hodge, the original publisher. So 58 years after the last volume, in the original Notable British Trials series, number 83, Trial of August Sangre, uh, number 84, Trial of Israel Lipsky, will be available soon. Thank you for listening. Now let's all go and enjoy some sports. <laughs> If there's any questions, ladies and gents, um, Mark is happy to take them, but I would ask that you yell them out. So 
everyone can hear. I have a real stupid question. Were acid attacks common in the East End? I mean, that's a terrible way to die or to murder someone forcing acid down their throat. Woo. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at the time, I don't, I don't, I don't have any statistics to tell me how common acid attacks were. You did get things like vitriol attacks that you do see. You do see that sort of thing in newspapers from time to time. But I'm not convinced it was a very sort of it was commonly used as a weapon. What it was was very easily available, and I agree with you. Terrible, terrible way to die. Any more? I've got a pretty simplistic one. Have you ever really, have you ever really worked out a motive for why he did it? No, I don't think anyone has. And um, it's uh, in, in a court of law, the prosecution had no um, obligation to try and prove motive. Uh, just like the defendant has no obligation to prove his own innocence. Uh, so, And actually, in uh, the old Bailey, uh, the prosecution didn't attempt to ascribe a motive to Lipsky. Um, they, they just didn't, they didn't, they made no attempt uh, to do that. In his summing up, uh, the judge, um, the judge said something along the lines of, uh, to the jury, it depends on. So there's two explanations for, for what happened. One explanation is that Lipsky acted alone. The other explanation is that Rosenblum and Schmuss acted together. And he said, it depends what you think the motive is. If you think it's a robbery, that could be uh, something which was perpetrated by people working together, Confederates. If you think it's a sexual offence, that could be something perpetrated by one man. And, well. Mark, was it one motive that uh, Lipsky was in debt? Lipsky didn't have very much money. Yeah. I, I have no idea why he was starting his own business. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, that was not a, a very, um, it, that doesn't seem like a very responsible decision. He borrowed money from his um, fiancee's mother and things like that. You know, but lots of people have got debts, so they don't do that. No, um, the judge worried about what he'd said later on because. Um, he thought that that, because the prosecution had not tried to ascribe any motive, the judge worried that he'd gone too far in what he said to the jury. Um, but actually, I don't. There was no, uh, as with the Johnny Yates case, difficult to prove that there was a sexual motive behind it. So actually, what the judge said uh, tended to to work for Lipsky rather than against him. Um, but no, I don't think anyone knows. Did Lipsky take the stand? No. Well, that's a bit stupid. He had no option. I mean, um, it was 1887, yeah. so defendants didn't give evidence in their own, on their own behalf in 1887. It wasn't until 1898 that that became legally possible. I mean, they didn't examine the body of poor Miriam to see if she had been. Yeah, they did. Uh, Dr. K, who's... Um, Dr. K thinks that he's a very um, observant and thorough doctor. And actually, I think that I wonder whether Dr. K just kind of makes up his mind and then sort of sticks to it a bit. But he looked and extracted a substance from um, Miriam Angel's vagina, which he put under a microscope, and there were no spermatozoa in the substance. So he concluded that it was a kind of natural discharge and not uh, there was there was no other indication of, of sexual violence 
Uh, so, and I kind of think he's probably right, actually. I don't think that he did, that he did interfere with Miriam Manager in that way. Because it's funny, recently um, a man was just tried, or he's been charged, of um, acid attacks yeah. as a prelude to robbery. I don't know about that one. Yeah, it was just in the papers. Mm. I mean, East London is now the home of acid attacks again for the last two months or whatever. Um, and uh, hence some of the anxiety I was describing before. And uh, what there's, there's, there seems to be a thing about acid attacks now, which is that uh, sentencing guidelines for knife crime have become... Uh, have, so the sentences involved for knife crime have become much more punitive. So people have tried to find other ways of kind of causing grievous bodily harm and so on without getting involved into the knife crime um, sentencing stuff. So maybe that's why people are using acid now rather than knives, because the sentences are not equivalent. Yeah, well, apparently in this article I read that they are going to really come down hard. Yeah, yeah. and then, then there'll be something else. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. okay, any other? Sue. Um, have had worth stealing? Sorry, sorry. So, sorry, could Maria Angel have had anything worth stealing? Yeah. yeah. In his confession, Litsky says that he thought there was something in there worth having. But Litsky's confession isn't a very good confession. I actually had nothing. I mean, at this time, uh, you know, particularly recent Polish Eastern European immigrants to the UK. They didn't have anything. Uh, I mean, they, they were the poorest people in, in the country. Um, so I don't think, uh, you know, even by common sense alone, I think Lipsky would have known that there was no point. Going, uh, so, I mean, supposedly he didn't know the angels. He didn't know them, um, although they had lived in the same place for a few months. Um, but I think he could have inferred from the fact that they were living in the same building as him that they had, they had nothing. So... No, I don't necessarily think that he even thought there was anything there worth having. He says he did, but I don't think so. Are we done? Well, do you know when this is going to come out, this book? Adam, do you know when this is going to come out, this book? <laughs> September. September. 2017. Well, this is just next month. That's next month, yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay. If that's all the questions, ladies and gents, I think you'll all agree, I think I know you'll all agree, a wonderful talk there, and filling a lot of gaps, and taking an interesting angle rather than just relating the facts of the murder, and then going into the trial and discrepancies. Wonderful talk, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Ripper. was Mark Ripper with The Trial of Israel Lipsky, an incredibly interesting talk that I hope you all enjoyed as much as I did. I'd like to thank Mark Ripper, Adam Wood, and Andrew Firth for making this and all of the presentations we have released from the 2017 East End Conference possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders and Victorian history and crime. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.